welcome back, everybody, to another edition of Clear the Dance Floor here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Colby Smith, and this is a barn burner of an episode we've got for you. I'm very, very excited about the show today because, well, let's start at the beginning, shall we? What did we hear? We just heard the collaboration between Leon Russell, Elton John, and Neil Young, one of the signature tracks on their 2010 album, The Union. That's the Elton and Leon collaboration. The Union from 2010. Before that, we heard Leon and uh, uh, Glenn Campbell collaborating from a TV special in 1983 on a couple, you know, a couple songs there. Gentle on My Mind. A little bit of uh, I Saw the Light. And of course, a little bit of Heartbreak Hotel there at the very end. Whole thing's available on YouTube. Definitely recommend checking that out. Very, very fun to see those guys. Glenn Campbell is just like one of the best voices ever. I realize I'm not the, breaking any ground here saying that, but it's just true. And very excited to play those guys. We kicked things off with Buffalo Tom late at night. Now, why did we start with Buffalo Tom? Well, I'll tell you. The guitarist for Buffalo Tom, Bill Janovitz, is also one heck of a writer. He wrote the 33 and a third book on Exile on Main Street, the Stones double album. Followed that up in 2013 with the book Rocks Off, 50 tracks that tell the story of the Rolling Stones. And this year, he is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Leon Russell, The Master of Space and Time's Journey Through Rock and Roll History, a weighty tome, a 28-hour audiobook, which I know from experience. Leon Russell, we've talked about him on the show before, is a fascinating figure to me just because he intersected with so many people over the course of his career, in addition to being a, a fantastic solo artist in his own right, a run of the first three albums he puts out in the early 70s, amazing, untouchable one, two, three run. And the book kind of traces his origins as a session musician in LA in the 60s into his solo career into kind of the fading away of the solo career and of course the rebirth uh, that happens at the end of his life with the union with being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then you know reuniting with Bob Dylan touring with him which is where I saw him we talk about that a little bit in the interview but I was very very excited to talk to Bill this week I talked to Bill Janovitz I interviewed him about this fantastic book he was very very kind to uh, uh you know talk with me a little bit over Zoom earlier this week. And so I've got that interview to play for you guys on the episode of the show today. Excited to get to that. Once again, this is Clear the Dance Floor. This is Radio Free Brooklyn. I am your host, Colby Smith. And here's me talking to Bill Janovitz about Leon Russell, the master of space and time's journey through rock and roll history, his best-selling book from earlier this year. Let's take a listen. Well, Bill Janovitz, welcome to Radio Free Brooklyn. Thanks so much, Colby. So uh, before we jump into talking about your book, um, I'm curious kind of what your relationship was to Leon Russell and his music kind of before the project began. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, the record that um, there is just sort of one of those records in my life, in my early development uh, as a listener and musician was actually was in a band with a guy when I was like 12 or 13 years old, my first band. And he had the Mad Dogs and Englishmen, the Joe Cocker record, which was really kind of a Leon Russell record, almost as much of a Joe Cocker record. Joe, Joe Cocker being the front man for this band that Leon assembled. And I just remember being fascinated by it early and often all the way through my life. And, and then, you know, having already been like a Rolling Stones fan, mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, George Harrison, the Beatles fan, and maybe seeing this guy at the Bangladesh concert for Bangladesh film and, and those records that were everywhere. I mean, I started making those like, you know, you start connecting the dots, as they say, and here was this guy, but that was about the extent of it. I mean, I knew, I knew like, you know, I knew a few of his songs very well aside from those collaborations. Uh, Tightrope was a big hit when I was like six years, seven years old. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, a song for you was a standard, this masquerade, of course, but I'm, I, I probably knew the covers of those more than I knew Leon, but I knew who Leon was. And, uh, but it, there's a distinction to be made between like the super fans who were like really stayed with him, bought every record all the way through, went to see him every time he came through town. No, I, I came at it at this more of like, wow, I know this story. And I remember like when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, and seeing that, you know, sort of teary induction acceptance speech there and Elton John, I, I sort of knew that, I knew the, I knew the story, I knew the contours, uh, the arc of the whole sort of life story that I, and I, I just, I thought, wow, what a fascinating story to tell. I can't believe this, this book hasn't been written yet, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, talking about the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, you know, I, I'm one of the people whose kind of first exposure to him was through the Union, you know, the album he did with with Elton John in in 2010, which we'll talk about more later. But the surprising thing to me, I guess, in reading the book was I don't think I understand or I understood rather just through that album, you know, kind of what a big star he really was, and especially the early part of the of the 70s. I mean, was that something that you felt like you had a good grip on, you know, good grip on going in, or was that something that kind of like revealed itself to you over the course of research and that? Kind Kind of thing. Uh, well, I, I, I knew I knew generally that he was a big star, and I, I think you know you. Uh, but I I don't think I knew that he was to the extent that he was yeah. such a big star. Like I, I I didn't and and I didn't know how how sustained it was. Like I didn't realize. I don't think I realized that he was headlining these all day things out <laughs> in you know football stadiums and like the Eagles, uh, whatever, the Almond Brothers, all the Beach Boys, all these guys opened up for him. And mm-hmm. his 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 tours grossed as much as Zeppelin tours in the same time. You know, he was and he was netting more because he had a streamlined operation. But um then it's the the inevitable question is like, well, how come we don't know about that? Or how what happened? And mm-hmm. that's as fascinating as part of the story as the fact that he had gotten there in the first place, you know. But it's kind of a story of rock and roll, hence the sort of cumbersome uh secondary title of my book, The Master of Space and Time's Journey Through Rock and Roll History. I mean, really, he starts with Jerry Lee Lewis in the fifties. Yeah. <laughs> he goes all the way into the 2016 when he, when he passed away. So I mean, the guy kind of saw it all. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly my next question, which was, you know, like you said, so the title of the book, the full title is Leon Russell, The Master of Space and Time's Journey Through Rock and Roll History. And it really is just a journey through that history. I mean, just like a handful of the people who he comes into contact with, even in the early days, are like the Stones, Phil Spector, the Beach Boys, all these folks. And it just continues as he goes on, you know, all these major figures kind of coming in and out of his, you know, professional life. And I'm wondering, I guess, for you, if that kind of breadth and scope, you know, was something that attracted you the project kind of in the early stages yeah well i'm fascinated by almost like any aspect of this kind of story right okay so a guy that played with jerry lee lewis like i'm the kind of guy that will go and go okay thank thank i mean back in the record digging days it was like oh you'd see a maybe you'd see credits maybe you wouldn't see credits and then you learn later like all the people that were uncredited like these wrecking so-called wrecking crew musicians or in new york it was our first time in in, in muscle shoals so 
it was all these things that sort of, um, you know, with the internet age, you started learning. There were like who, who these people were, the James Jamerson on bass on Motown or Roger Hawkins on drums and Muscle Shoals. And like what, inst- <laughs> excuse the pun, what instrumental parts they played on <laughs> to make these hit records. And for people that have listened to these records like we have all our lives, you know, constantly, it's fascinating. So there's the there's that. There's the guy that did the Wrecking Crew. All right. Well, there, you know, there's many, you know, there's Carol Kay. There's mm-hmm. Hal, Hal Blaine who did that. But then there's this guy that kind of transcends that and starts leading his own sort of almost cult-like kind of <laughs> thing of followers and right. Delaney and Bonnie and out to out into the world. And, and who, who does Delaney and Bonnie appeal to and and whose career musical trajectories do they change well guys like eric clapton elton john george harrison i mean the biggest names in rock and roll history were affected by this catalyst called leon russell but then he goes further and he becomes this gigantic rock star headlining literal stadiums and arenas for five years you yeah. know and then he disappears yeah yeah <laughs> you know? he goes on snl with his new um configuration which is basically a duet situation with his then wife mary they get divorced and then the whole thing sort of goes to pot thereafter yeah. for a variety of reasons so then that fascinates me like okay what were those dark years like and i i gotta confess that when i was putting this outline together there's a big not quite a blank spot, but me tap dancing to sort of like get from there to the to the union yeah. 20, 20 or 30 years later, or, you know, 30 years later. Um, like what happened to those? Like, what am I going to write for in those years? And well, it turns out I had to cut so much from those years because it's, oh, really? it's really interesting to me. Like, and I think it's really interesting to other people, whether or not they were super fans of Leon. I think it, whether they, if they were super fans of Leon, they, they, more so than anybody wanted to know wh- where he went. I mean, they kind of had an, more of an idea than most people. Right. But then, you know, what, but what was transpiring with family and, and his band and his career decisions and that sort of thing. So all of those things appeal to me as a, as a reader and a, a and a voracious sort of consumer of these documentaries yeah. and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and that sort of thing, you know, standing in the shadows or whatever it is, like the human stories behind these things are, are, are fascinating to me. Absolutely. I mean, just as a quick aside, you know, you're talking about like a, a consumer of the documentaries and everything. It was kind of a thrill to me, like going through um, the book and, and recognizing like you're kind of citing the same YouTube videos that I've seen of like him and Glenn Campbell, you know, playing Gentle on My Mind together in that whole session, that kind of thing. It was just it's just kind of a thrill that that was like part of the, the research process for you. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, what a what a time to be an author to to, to have this oh, stuff yeah. at your fingertips like. I'm working on a book now about the cars and I, and, mm. and, and Elliot Easton uh, in, in like a 1990 interview I was just reading last night was talking about like how he collects videotapes of Shindig. Uh, so he's actually going and digging and finding before the internet, you know, like going oh, to yeah. record stores and thrift stores and he collects all this stuff because, you know, he's a, he's a super student fan of this kind of stuff too. So now, cause I remember like when the, Museum of Broadcast opened up in New York City going, yeah. wow, I'm going to get over there. I can go watch these old films of these old shows that I, I've only heard about, you know, yeah. Rock and Circus or whatever it is, you know. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and talk about this particular book too. I mean, since we're talking about the research process a little bit, you know, I I, I watched an interview with you with uh, the church studio in in Tulsa where you talked a little bit about the origins and about how it was kind of presented to you, you know, as an opportunity and and uh, uh, rather than something that you you know kind of cobbled together on your own and pitched. Uh, and I wondered if you want to talk a little bit more about that, just kind of how it found its way to you. Yeah, you know, I'm not a I'm not a real hustler when it comes to uh, being a writer because I've got you know I'm a musician. I've got other things in my life. I mean, if I was a full time writer, I, I, I probably wouldn't have had such a lag between projects. But since I I have the luxury of just sort of picking and choosing, it took quite a right. while of, of going back and forth with my agent, who uh, is extremely patient because it took years. <laughs> but he's he's and he's got he's got like. The Jeanette McCurdy book, so he's doing right. quite well, quite well, well without <laughs> me, you know. Uh, I think that's her name, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I wish my mom were dead. So he's got books like that, um, but he's also a fan of music and he is a musician himself. So we, he brought this idea to me. I, I had thrown out, in fact, like the year before, uh, an idea of doing a Mad Dogs and Englishman book because I, I knew that it could be a book in and of itself, but he yeah. thought it was too narrow in scope, uh, which is probably correct. Uh, as it is, it takes three chapters in this book about Leon. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, a, a, about a year after that, I, I get an email from him saying, um, "I think I think it literally said you said no to Leon Russell, right?" And I said, "I didn't say no to Leon Russell, if you remember." I blah 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 blah. And he goes, "Oh well, um, he's got representatives of his estate looking to sort of." do a documentary, do a mm. book, do a record thing, re-release. And I said, well, um, let me be that person. So I, because I, 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 like I said, as soon as I, as soon as it was presented to me, I just remember that the, those maybe three or four or five touch points of his life. Like I yeah. knew, I knew the basics, but I wanted to fill in all that detail. And I thought, oh, this will be an extremely fun project. It'll also give me an excuse to at least approach all these people that he touched and I knew Elton John. I knew Bruce Springsteen was affected by him. I knew mm -hmm. Eric Clapton. And they all said yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, so, I, so it kind of bared out. But I wrote a letter to Jan, his widow, and uh, I said, I, I'm honored to be considered for this. And this yeah. is why I feel like I, I could do a good job with it. And uh, she gave me her blessing. And uh, that's how it happened. Yeah, amazing. Well, I mean, you, you said something just a second ago about just, you know, all these these major figures who were kind of affected by him, you know, like Eric Clapton, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John, people like that. And there's something, it, there's a sense that really comes through in the book that is like, Leon is someone who these people really want to talk about, you know, like it's, it seems like there, there, there's a real sense of like, oh, somebody's doing a Leon Russell book, like I got to get it, you know what I mean? Like, uh, where do you think that that sense of enthusiasm comes from for these people? You know, what is it about his kind of unique uh, appeal that makes people want to really kind of keep his legacy alive? Yeah, or even like sort of stoke his legacy, like yeah. or bring him bring him credit that that because he has been forgotten. Well, I mean, so many of them, in, including people who he um, burned bridges with, or or, or mm -hmm. otherwise, or you know, mutually burned bridges, like Rita Coolidge or whatever else. They wanted to talk about him because, first of all, now they're all on this side of their lives where they're in their seventies or older. Like I talked to no fewer than five people that passed away subsequently to my interviews, you know, Jimmy Karstein, um, Al Schmidt, who was in his nineties, a great Grammy winning producer and engineer, mm. uh, but, uh, you know, so on. Um, 
I think they all they're they're all so well established and so secure in themselves and in their like their own legacy that they're like looking back to go yeah like I think some people feel guilty. I mean, they talk about it in the book of, of like, I think if George Harrison were around, he'd be, I would have talked to George Harrison, you know, yeah. like I, I think they, they knew what he meant to not just them personally, not to them personally musically, but just to music in general. And, you know, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a musician, but even I, you know, and I know what a good, what makes a good piano player. I know what makes a great piano player, you know, I think before my high bar for rock and roll piano probably was what was I, I always had Leon up there, but you know, doing a deep listen and to see what like when when you talk to when I talk to Herb Alpert, he's like, yeah, you know, Leon would sit there in a session like before, way before in his, in his session days and go, well, I don't know what to play here, Hal, and Hal would say, well, just you know, wait until you feel like playing something. He goes, and all of a sudden. Leon would play something. It would be his quote unquote special little groove. And the whole band in a studio, the whole band of session musicians would adapt to Leon's groove. And he would almost uh, subtly, uh, maybe by design, he would steer the arrangement that by himself just by playing. And, and when you, when you hear people like, a, like a, a master musician, like Herb Alpert, or Eric Clapton talk about that, then, I mean, I already, like I said, I already had a predilection and I have pretty big ears for that kind of stuff. But when you hear them talk about it and then go back and listen, you go, holy jeez. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, can hear what you can hear how it works, you know? Absolutely. So it's sort of like this, not quite a secret handshake of musicians. Uh, it's like, it's like they want to share those lesser known people. And yeah, it, it's absolutely ridiculous to now for people to understand, like, I mean, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a great way for people to have tributes paid to them, but there is no stated criteria. Right. Uh, and so for a guy like Leon you know, to not be, to, to sort of, you know, he hadn't been in there for such a long time. It took enormous lobbying efforts of Elton John specifically to get him there. And it, yeah. what, if it were not for Elton John, he would not be in there. And then they made a special category. It's sort of like musical excellence. It's like he should be in there as an artist and all that stuff because he sold millions of records. For I mean, I made the whole case in my preface. You don't need yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> to go on and on about it. But but I think that's why these people were thrilled to talk about him. And they were all available because it was the pandemic. So right. We were all getting on Zoom calls for the first yeah, time. Just, you know. Bruce Springsteen has joined the Zoom kind of thing. Actually, yeah. You know, it's funny side story. My wife um, grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in Long Island, on Long Island, but my wife uh, grew up as a as a big Bruce Springsteen fan. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, she was, you know, she was impressed with whenever oh, I was talking to Elton John. I'm talking to Willie Nelson. Uh, but I'm like, oh, Laura, you're never gonna guess who I'm gonna talk to tomorrow. Now it was it wasn't a Zoom call, but it was it was gonna be a phone call with with Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, and uh, she's like, you know, she sort of froze up, and she's like, so she gets. Uh, she the day comes now the day in in between no that very day that I was supposed to have a talk with him he got busted in Jersey you know by that oh yes overzealous cop for right. DUI or whatever after he had, had a shot of tequila and what got on his motorcycle so uh, I wasn't I was thinking okay this is not gonna happen now yeah yeah uh, but and nevertheless she gets all showered she gets dressed she puts on her makeup for a phone call that I'm going to have with Bruce Springsteen and she sits outside the door and I put him on speakerphone and he goes uh, 
the phone rings and, it, and I've got a tape somewhere. He goes, is this Bill? And I said, yeah. He goes, it's Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. He was fantastic. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, that that's such an interesting one, too. I mean, like, I, I never would have put together, you know, Mad Dogs and, and his sound. But now that, I, now that I know, it's like, of course. Of course this was a huge influence. That's a great example. I mean, yeah. and I, I was just bringing up an example of a guy that was around. But that's a great example. And, and I... I kind of had that inkling, but he talks about it, Bruce does, in his Born to Run memoir. He talks yeah. about going to see the movie with uh, little Steven, I think, yeah. when they were kids. And and like I've, and then he talks about it in, the, in my book. He's like, I've got to make a band like that. And yeah. he didn't have funds to put together an 11-piece band or make it. Right. He did, but he couldn't sustain it, you know, on the Jersey Shore. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, you could see that that's another influence that Leon had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you were talking a little bit earlier about, uh, uh, you know, what he was like in the when he was a session guy and, you know, kind of like leading the arrangements and that kind of thing. These are some of my favorite parts of the book is just like they, they feel like the most like atmospheric to me in a way like you really get a sense of like what it was like to be there in L.A. at that time, you know, just kind of at the center of the music business during this real boom period. Uh, and I wondered if you wanted to talk about, you know, just kind of crafting those chapters in particular and, you know, bringing all those other voices in and just how, how you kind of set that that tone for those uh for those sections yeah well a lot of that story uh which you know it's 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 now referred to as the wrecking crew i mean they didn't really mm-hmm. have a, a a nickname back then they'd say the regulars the group whatever they you know which but it was some it was a, it was a mixture of people but uh, you know I, I that story was fairly well told with Dan, uh, denny tedesco denny tedesco's uh mm-hmm. film uh the wrecking crew and then hal blaine had a book before that and there was a book a kent Hartman, I think his name is, who had a book on them. So that stuff was, was you know, again, this is like sort of the era of like when the Funk Brothers, the Standing in the Shadows movie came out, the Muscle Shoals movie came out. So all of a sudden you're starting to learn about these very important mm-hmm. musicians. But that system uh, was very, it was very interesting to me. And getting to talk to Dean Torrance of Jan and Dean was yet another little thrill of mine. Um, and, you know, I don't think I knew, I don't, I'm not sure if it's in those other uh, stories about like, how much it was really Jan of Jan and Dean who kind of assembled that group for the first time. And then it led to the, you know, it led to, uh, I mean, it was really Phil Spector who called, who harnessed the full power of that crew and made basically Phil Spector records with different artists' names right. on them over and over again. I mean, they really were. Yeah. He, he assembled the writers, he put them together. You know, it's like basically like session it's like Millie Vanilli's of their, well, not, not Millie Vanilli, because Millie Vanilli didn't sing, but basically putting singers and artists together. Although there were cases of somebody singing and being, it was actually somebody else, you know, as the act. So the blossoms became whatever else, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I like I said, I kind of knew a lot of that, but to actually talk to Don Randy, the piano player that was, you know, literally cheek to jowl with, with, with Leon, uh, uh, to talk to the remaining musicians about that that era uh, was was fascinating. I mean, it's it's the era where rock and roll gets you know rock and roll was, was sort of dying out or had kind of died out and was becoming pop and and so so then rock and roll comes back and it becomes a session thing. So you've got the birds really just being Roger McGuinn and and the session guys and right. Uh, and then, and then, but then Leon was through all that. He could recognize that it was going somewhere else. He wanted to be an artist. He saw the Stones come in. He's like, "Well, the Stones aren't using session musicians, you yeah. know." In their early days, like they, it was the Stones as the band. The right. Beatles kind of changed all that for everybody. Um, 
and then so he kind of sees okay well this is this is going this is going the other way now i'm i'm going to form my own bands and blah right. blah blah yeah, um, talking a little bit about his, his kind of session work. I mean, it, it was a thrill too to read about the, the 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 kind of like legendary sessions with Bob Dylan that result in watching the river flow and and when I paint my masterpiece. Obviously, this is a little later than when he's like you know making his living as a session uh, musician. Dylan is, is maybe legendarily private uh, <laughs> about stuff like this. Was that particular chapter difficult to research or uh, um, anything like that? No, no, because I talked to all the people that were in the room, not all the people, but Jim Keltner uh, was yeah. a great, valuable interview. Uh, Peter Nichols was uh, Leon's right-hand man, essentially. He had started on sound. He had come over with Joe Cocker, so uh, he was there on the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour, and he, he was one of the few outside people to be at that session. Uh, so then, then, And then there were two people that passed away, Carl Radel and, and, and Jesse Ed Davis. And, of course, Bob, I couldn't get Bob. Bob was one of the few elusive uh, interviews I couldn't get on the phone. It wasn't for lack of trying, but I right. didn't think that was, I didn't think that was ever going to happen. Um, but no, they were there, and it's fairly well documented. Um, I mean, Leon talks about it in his own little. He started mm-hmm. a memoir himself that didn't ever really come together, but it's out there uh, for you know self publication on online. Um, so he told the story, but Leon is sort of like the way Leon tells it. In, I think inadvertently in his memoir is that he basically wrote the music. I mean, so yeah. the, the story is. I mean, that the the, the truth is that um, it wasn't that he he was hired as a session musician. It was he was hired to produce. He was he was hired as the first independent producer of of, of a Bob Dylan uh, right. track, and it was two tracks. So, but the way the way. Um, Leon tells it is that he brought in the change. He said, Bob said, yeah, bring in some changes and I'll write the lyrics basically. So that's a co-write in any, in any real kind of sense of the word. But then talking to Jim, uh, it said, I always thought the changes were, the, the chord changes were, were Bob's and that, and that Leon again just steered it into his own thing. Mm-hmm. And Bob was writing lyrics. He was literally, as the music was being played with the band in the studio, he's literally going up against the studio wall, shouting the lyrics off of the wall so he could, uh, kind of not be on the mic, but kind of hear how they, how the cadence and the met and the meter and the words sound against the music that the band is playing. Yeah. And he's writing them down on a, on a pad. Uh, and he's hearing himself off the wall, you know, the reflection. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, he was remarkably open with um, with Leon. Like he told Leon, well, this is how I wrote this. This is how I wrote that. Yeah. I think he recognized it was game recognizing game and going, okay, I'm going to talk to this guy. He's not the press. I'm going to, he wants to learn about my songwriting. I'll tell him how I did it, you know, and yeah. I'll give him my secrets. And there's a, uh, there's a Rolling Stone magazine account of the Bangladesh show short that happened shortly after that and that people were amazed that bob did like these sort of classic songs that he i mean mm-hmm. he hadn't really played in public much at all since 66 right but all of a sudden he's playing these classic you know blowing in the wind and stuff like that and the 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 the, the, the journalist who was in the dressing room said you know it's quite possible that bob did these simply because leon russell asked him to yeah yeah (laughs) and that was kind of the thing it's like hey how about we do this how about we do this song like totally i think bob was truly nervous as hell and he had stage fright and and and, and he's like well what should we do and leon's like well how how about blowing in the wind how about hard hard rain (laughs) and he said okay yeah 
<laughs> well, their 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 connection. It, I'll I'll tell you that I I actually saw Leon Russell open for Dylan during that like that tour in 2011 that yeah. they did. It, it was such a great time, but it was so cool to see you know as a later part in the book that uh, you know that they're like hanging out at Leon's bus and that kind of thing that they have this connection that kind of lasts, which is crazy because neither of them are known as especially like social butterflies you know what i mean so. oh, it's like it's like that snl skit with what frankenstein tonto and uh you know yeah. they're, singing happy, they're singing merry christmas <laughs> yeah exactly but uh but but anyway tarzan. so frankenstein tarzan and right 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 <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, just a, a couple more questions for you about kind of like the the, the middle period there of uh, his career. And one is there's this great kind of runner in the middle part of the book when when things kind of like start to fall apart a little bit for for Leon for for you know a, a million reasons, all of which you get into you know in the book. Where he, I was really struck by this kind of thing where he kind of repeatedly refuses to play acoustic pianos, uh, uh, whether it's live or in the studio even. And it just kind of struck me as this like it's this symbol of like this like a distance from himself or his musical identity that you know people. No, and I wonder if that took on any kind of similar significance for you when you were when you were writing it, or, or kind of like what you think about that whole that whole era where he's kind of he just doesn't want to doesn't want to play the piano. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I write that spe- specifically. I mean, in a, in, a, in a thumb, I mean that that specific thing of him literally walling himself off from his audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really retreated into himself. I mean, he he, he had you know he had been this gallivanting jumping on a piano type wild man in his early days but he just didn't have that i mean the first, there's a there are a lot of things that went into it i mean primarily his health started to fail yeah i think he started to get depressed i mean he was always battling depression i think he started doing shows in a lot of ways because he knew nothing else and he needed the money um but he knew no, what else to do but it was more my 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 i mean he was always fascinated by technology going all the yeah. way back he was like the first people one of the first guys in tulsa or that area and any of those guys knew that put a, a microphone in the pian and an acoustic piano and put it mm-hmm. through a guitar amplifier to be as loud as the other guys in the band um so from then on he was i mean we, we i talk about all his technological curiosity and innovations to the most famous of which being that he basically spurred Roger Lynn to make the drum, the Lynn drum, yeah. which is the most, one of the most revolutionary instruments. Such in a cool music. story in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So he was always that guy, but he increasingly got deeper, too deep into technology. And he, and his stubborn nature was, first of all, it was convenient. He was able to do this, but it represented a lot of things because he was always a band leader and a collaborator and a guy that puts together bands and musicians and, and, and and collaborates in the studio with some of the greatest musicians that 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 ever lived, and he always had those at his disposal. I mean, you know, Jim Keltner would have forsaken big money to go and play Leon Russell things, even at Leon's lowest ebbs. But mm. and in fact, he comes back for, and plays with him on the Union. But Leon um, dec- seemed to after the after being the band leader with him and Mary that duets type thing. I just don't think he had it in him anymore. And he didn't want to deal with people uh, as much as he used to. Yeah. And he could realize he was sort of fascinated. He was always fascinated in, in, in overdubbing a lot of his records anyway, back in the seventies. He, that's kind of how the drum machine, that is literally how the drum machine came to be, uh, that he came, that he could sort of get a real drum sound instead of just this click track that he was playing right. to and overdubbing as many instruments as he could himself. But yeah, so that I mean, there's it, you can't help but like 
fall into the symbolism of that. Like, okay, so you want to work with people less, you want to deal with people less. Then in the audience, he's not even engaging the audience. He's behind a big, in the in the earliest days, a big wall of racks of, yeah. of MIDI and digital stuff that, you know, just didn't sound very good. But it was like this idea of moving forward as well. Yeah. And not, he was never somebody that was going to be, yeah, well, I'm gonna, now I'm going to do my, I'm going to do a show of my, you know, of, I'm going to do the, the Carney tour or whatever. Right. You know? right. He wasn't that, he wasn't that guy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'd love to move into, uh, you know, just being conscious of time here, move into talking about the union a little bit. Uh, um, just cause this, this is an album that I just like, I, uh, am crazy about. I just like, it came out when I was in college. I was like a, you know, a classic rock fan, a big Elton John fan. And I just like, I, you know, played this thing all the time before we get into kind of the story of it a little bit. Um, uh, did you, do you, you like it? Do you have an opinion about it, uh, about this particular one? Yeah, I, I'm yeah. sort of, I mean, my position was like, especially, uh, I mean, I liked it when it came out, um, mm. but especially seeing what preceded it from like the mid 70s on. I mean, there's a couple of bright spots after the 70s uh, for me. I'm just talking about subjective taste. Yeah. Uh, but it becomes it becomes him making these what his his stalwart bass player, Jack Wessel, said were these quote unquote merch records. Basically, yes. like what a lot of indie folk artists or whatever or indie bands would do in the early 2000s oh i can get a cd burner and make my own cds and sell these at the shows and that's kind of what he was doing uh making records at home with cheesy digital technology and yeah i mean you could fool yourself when you're a musician because i've been there where you're like oh it sounds it sounds great like you know i don't need a real bass player or drummer here and it doesn't sound great it's yeah people knowing stuff is missing so uh, when he finally comes back and does that record, it's like a real organic, first of all, it's T-Bone. So T-Bone's going to make it rootsy sounding. Elton wanted to make a rootsy sounding record. That's why he called T-Bone. Um, there was this era of the Stones getting Don Was and other and mm-hmm. all the Johnny Cash and, and Rick Rubin type artists going back to stripping it back down. So it was that spirit. And I think it's a winning spirit. It, are all the songs fantastic? No, but there's some fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> There's some fantastic songs on there. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, going to Shallow with Neil Young, I think, is where, where it's the three of them singing. It's fascinating and, and, and haunting to me. Yeah. And you've got these great Bernie Taupin lyrics. Um, so it was an organic thing. But I was going to say that was really surprising to me was how many people in, um, that were in Leon's world and super fans and stuff don't like that record. And yeah. Leon himself didn't like that record. Apparently. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's less surprising because he was this – sort of contrarianish, you know, curmudgeonly guy by the end. Um, but he, and he apologized to T-Bone for mistreating him. And T-Bone's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you treated me fine. But I think the same with the Bruce Hornby record, which is not an organic sounding record, but right, right. I think it was like a guy that wanted to bring Leon back and his, and his Bruce's, uh, Bruce's uh, uh, aim was true, to, uh, you know, to do so. Uh, but uh, I think, Leon was already sort of set in his ways by by that point, and there's a, yeah. there's a funny, there's a funny story that Bruce Hornsby tells in that about changing a lyric as well. That, that's very good. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and then just coming into you know what uh, uh will be my final question for you is uh you know when we uh, we're coming kind of coming into the present you know just last week you know there was a new tribute album that came out of for for Leon that was called I think it's called a song for Leon it has people like Margot Price and Orville Peck and all this stuff on it. When you think about kind of what his legacy is now. I mean, do you ha- have thoughts about that? Do you kind of like see it continuing on past uh, past your project and then others as well? 
Yeah, I think what would really help and what will really help is when this actual when this doc, if if this documentary film gets made yeah. that they've been working on and it's like, you know, it's some big names. I, I'm not sure if the names are out there yet, so I'm not going to be the one to spill the beans, but right. <laughs> it, it's for real. Give us a scoop and, here on the on the radio yeah, Brooklyn. <laughs> on the internet radio. I mean, it's it's for real. So, I think people need to see you know, uh, it's one it's one thing for I, I think this tribute record is great and I think I yeah. think I think among musicians like these musicians, Margot, um, you know, the Tedeschi trucks of the world, these roots here mm-hmm. musicians, I think Leon will always be that guy. He, 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 it's like anybody, his legacy is, is there. Um, but in terms of the general public, like I didn't see any of this Daisy Jones and the Six thing or whatever, but there's that, um, there's this rediscovery or I'm sorry, this romanticization of like seventies rock bands and seventies rock culture and like, you know, the, the vinyl series that didn't go anywhere. So, but I think if people get to see Leon in his prime, starting with, you know, you can do it yourself. You can do it. You can do your own little mini film festival. First of all, a lot of it's online, but you know, anything from Mad Dogs and Englishmen, anything from Bangladesh, the last blank, uh, yeah, documentary has amazing. It's called "The Poem Is Naked Person." You get the idea of the culture of that Leon was in, but also like his actual live shows. And then there's this great um, document called uh, "Deep Freeze: The Leon Russell Festivals" or something like mm-hmm. that that Jeff Haas put together. And it's really bad video of from the from the early '70s, but it's from '70. 70- Two seventy-two. So you really see Leon in his prime with an amazing band. Uh, so I think I think that stuff needs to be, and, and that would be a, the kind of thing that wow, look at this guy, look at this yeah. geek rock star in the early seventies, like really bringing it, and what a band, and what songs. That would, I think, really put it over the top. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for the uh, <laughs> documentary to come out. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's all I got for you, Bill. I just want to say, you know, I, I really love the book. I really just, like, uh, you know, just, like, sped through it. And I'm a, I'm a slow reader, so, so <laughs> you got yeah, something working on. Uh, so I, I really appreciate you making the time to talk and uh, uh, such a joy to hear about kind of what went into it and, and all this stuff. And uh, it's just such a great story. So thanks again for making the time for us. Well, thanks so much. I, I'm glad you liked it, and thanks for having me. All right. How about that, huh? Bill Janovitz here, gracing Radio Free Brooklyn. Incredibly uh, uh, gracious guy. So, so nice of him to uh, to spend uh, uh, some time with me over Zoom this week. And that very happy to have that interview on the air now. Uh, once again, his book is Leon Russell, The Master of Space and Time's Journey Through Rock and Roll History. That was out this year as the New York Times bestseller. Well, thanks again to Bill for uh, uh, for making the time to talk to us here at Radio Free Brooklyn. This has been Clear the Dance Floor. I'm your host, Colby Smith. We'll be back again next week. Uh, but uh, for the meantime, you can check out that. You can check out uh, back episodes of this show, obviously. You can check out Bill's other books. Those are uh, Rocks Off, the book about the Rolling Stones from 2013, and then the 33 and a Third book series entry on Exile on Main Street, also to his credit. And, of course, all the Buffalo Tom albums are streaming and uh, available for purchase uh, uh, as well. Um, but uh, that about wraps the show up for this week. want to thank you all for listening. want to thank Bill once again. want to thank the station for giving us a home uh, uh, through this fall. So uh, we'll 
will be, we will be back next week. This has been Clear the Dance Floor. I'm your host, Colby Smith. And we're going to go out to uh, a song that we talk about in the interview that Leon played on with Bob Dylan in 1971. This is Watching the River Flow, and it is now. Bye-bye.